University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. Consider one of the greatest French writers, Voltaire, who influenced countless of his contemporaries and successors in the field of philosophy and history and literature. However, he might be the master craftsman when it comes to writing simply profound statements, such as, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is an absurd one. Or the secret of being a bore is to not tell everything. Or for today's reflection on apothems, common sense is not that common. A terse and instructive remark can cause us to pause and to rethink things. That's why we've been looking at eight simple sayings that will change everything in our apothem series. Sometimes the most powerful statement is the shortest one. Take, for example, the phrase, I'm sorry. For this, we take a look at the book of Genesis, chapter 27, verse 30. Let me lay the groundwork for our story. Once there were twins named Jacob and Esau, and they didn't get along. They actually started fighting when they were in the womb. And during birth, Esau came out first with Jacob holding on to his heel. That's not normal. And even uh, as we looked uh, at the, the twins closer, they looked so different. The Bible says that Esau was covered with so much red hair, it was like he had clothes on him. And Jacob's skin was smooth. Well, they, they get even more different as they grew up. Esau hunted animals and spent time outside. Their dad, Isaac, was a big meat eater, so Esau was his favorite. Jacob, on the other hand, was the quiet guy who liked to stay indoors. Their mom, Rebecca, liked Jacob the best. The Bible doesn't talk much about Jacob and Esau as kids, but we do know that Esau was lucky to be the oldest because that's what he received was called the birthright. That meant that he would be in charge of his entire family, and he would receive the entire land and estate and stuff from his father. And Jacob would probably have to work for his brother Esau, and their dad Isaac would give Esau a blessing, which means that Isaac would ask God to take care of his oldest son Esau in an extra special way. Well, you probably can think Esau was pretty excited about this, but that wasn't the fact. In fact, one day he gave up his birthright to his brother who was cooking some amazing smelling stew. Jacob was making this, and he said, I will trade you this stew for your birthright. And he doesn't think twice. He gives it over to his brother. Esau wasn't exactly the smartest guy. He had what was probably the equivalent of millions of dollars in his own day, to a mushy bowl of soup. The Bible says that Esau didn't take care of his birthright. But later, uh, when Isaac was really old and about to die, he wanted to ask God to take a special care of his firstborn, Esau. So he told Esau to go out and, and to hunt and make him some tasty food. And, and while he was out on the hunt, Rebekah decided that she would trick her husband and her oldest son. You see, she would dress her son into clothing that made it appear as if he was his brother. Prepare a tasty meal for your father, 
and you take it to your father to eat, and he will give you his blessing in return. Isaac was blind, so she was telling Jacob to pretend to be Esau, but there was a slight problem with the plan. First off, Esau was hairy, so Isaac, if he touched Jacob's smooth skin, he would know that he wasn't telling the truth. And the Bible says that Esau also had a certain smell to him, which was a polite way of saying he stunk. And I mean, you could imagine he was a smelly guy because he was sweating, he was handling dead animals as a hunter, probably blood getting caught in his clothes and matted in his hairy skin. So even though Isaac was blind, he might smell Jacob and touch his arm and know the truth. And so that's why Rebecca has Jacob dress up in some clothing like her brother, put sheepskin on his arms to trick his father. And guess what? The trick worked. And he gave his blessing over to his younger son. And we'll pick up in verse 30 as Esau is about to walk into the aftermath of his brother's trick. Verse 30 says, After Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob has scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I am your son, he answered. Your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted the game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came in, and I blessed him, and indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard of his father's words, he burst out with loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. Skip down to verse 41 that reads, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessings of his father had given him. He said to him, The day of mourning for my father are, is near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Remember the 1971 song by Carly Simon, You Are So Vain. <laughs> you know that song. Uh, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, don't you, don't you? Or what about Bob Dylan's Positively Fourth Street? Or maybe uh, Joan Jett's in the Black Hearts, I Hate Myself for Loving You. And of course, George Strait goes straight to the point when he says, I hate everything. I'm trying to think of a theme song that works for this particular story. There's so much to unpack in the story, including and not limited to why Rebecca is such an awful mother, she has a distinct favorite in her household. My mother raised three boys. She doesn't have a clear favorite in her house at all. But let's not pretend that a parenting fail overshadows the real pain and disappointment and anger and resentment that Esau was feeling at this moment. Many, if not most of us, can relate to what Esau is feeling. We all have been hurt and disappointed and wronged by others whether it be at the hands of a coworker or bosses or teachers or coaches or neighbors or friends or complete strangers or family, we've all felt the, the very real human emotion of being wronged by things that were said and unsaid, by things done and undone. We've all been backstabbed, tricked, and manipulated. And that feeling is like being pushed into a hole of anger and alienation in which the walls feel unscalable. Think about the times that you've truly been wronged. In small ways or big ones, maybe someone stole something or turned others against you or broke an agreement or cheated on you or spoke unfairly or abusively towards you. When you think of, of these things when they happen, and, and in my own life, I feel 
mad and hurt and startled and wounded and sad all mixed together. And naturally it arises to want us to strike back and to punish and get, get others to agree with us, to make a case against the other person who's wronged us. These feelings and impulses are normal. There's an incident from my childhood that sticks out to me. As you can imagine, being the baby of the, of the family, there was a, a lot of things that I was asked to do that um, my older brothers wanted to see if it would work out first. Like the time they thought it would be cool if somebody did a flip off the trampoline. I was asked to do it first. I landed uh, my back first on a root. <laughs> I was also pushed and shoved around since they were bigger than me. I mean, they were not abusive brothers. They were just older brothers. But I remember the day that I like to call baby brother strikes back. You see, my brothers had made me so mad. They were picking on me that I reared back and punched my older brother in the face as hard as I could. I mean, I really walloped him. Except he didn't even flinch. There was no gasp of pain. There was no cry of hurt. My revenge had not worked, and so my natural response was to take off running as fast as I could. <laughs> like Esau, we, we become overwhelmed with these really real and painful emotions that, that either we get trapped in victimhood or we begin to plot revenge. The writer of Genesis perfectly is clear at this point. Esau wanted to kill his brother. Wouldn't you if you were in his shoes? Okay, maybe not murder, but there would be some trickery or some deceit or robbing of your future. Isn't that worth some sort of revenge? And when we're hurt, we often turn to plotting and scheming retribution. We come up with the line that we will say, the plot that will find a way to sabotage them. We know the emotional torment that we will bring down on others. Revenge is not always in the form of murder most of the time. More often it's the form of a cold shoulder shutting that person out, ignoring them for days and weeks and months, triangulating others into the situation to pull them into our side. We spread unflattering rumors and paint that other person in the worst possible light. We block them on social media. We refuse to respond to their messages. A poll found that the most common way that workplace people get back at their coworkers is not undermine them or take credit for a project that they had a, a work in, 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 in but... In fact, the most common way to get back at a coworker is this, to steal or throw away their lunch. <laughs> the problem for Esau was that as he began to plot his revenge, his mother snuck his brother out of town. Jacob ran away to Rebekah's brother Laban. There, there was more drama that ensued as Laban promised to give Jacob his daughter Rachel for years of labor, but Laban tricked Jacob when the time came only fitting for him. He married his older daughter Leah instead. Jacob ended up marrying both Leah and Rachel, becoming the father of many children. Years passed. The brothers developed their own families and estates, and yet this cloud hung over Jacob of what he had done to his brother Esau. He knows that he must reconcile for what he's done. He sends a messenger to his brother asking for a meeting. However, Jacob was struck with fear over what his brother might still do to him. The night came as he encounters a messenger from God where the Bible says that he physically wrestled with. And after their fight, God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. 
And this leads us to Genesis chapter 33, verse 1. As the morning broke, Esau looked forth and saw that his brother had assembled 300 of his men, 400 of his men, and an army was there. Can you imagine how Jacob felt about the pain to reconcile? Clearly his brother had other plans. Do you remember that old Chicago song, Hard to Say I'm Sorry? Or what about Elton John's song, Sorry Seems to Be the Hardest Word? Why is it so hard to say I'm sorry? See, the irony and the difficulty of saying these words and meaning is that we've been the beneficiaries of a heartfelt apology. We felt the relief of someone humbling themselves and asking for grace. So why then is it so hard for us to come to terms with our need to apologize? Well, there are, in fact, a myriad of reasons why. For one, we don't like to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to look bad or be viewed in an unfavorable light. We get so caught up in how our mistakes made us feel that we don't stop and consider how it affects others. We can think of all the things that they did to cause us to say and do the things that we did to wrong that person. And that's why we'd rather explain ourselves, because there is a reason behind our choice. For some, we, our apologies make us feel weak and vulnerable, like we're losing power and control. And in that vulnerability, we, we don't know what the other person is going to say or do in return, because we might have had an apology that, that someone before has thrown back in our faces. And who wants to have their apology rejected? There's a, a fear in, in that my words won't make a difference. In fact, human evolution has endowed us with a psychological motivation to avoid being exploited by others. Self-preservation is our best interest, after all. For others, we already feel bad about what we have said and what we've done or not said and not done. Therefore, apologizing might bring back all those feelings, causing us to feel shame all over again. And guilt is a very real, powerful human emotion that causes us to resist the urge to acknowledge the wrongs that we've committed out of a fear of the emotional toll it might take on us. And still, for some, denial of what has been done and said gives us the impression that we we don't bring it up, and, and therefore it never happened. It's like the emotional response of a T-Rex. If you don't move, he won't see you. You won't get eaten. For others, we think to ourselves, well, it, it was just a simple mistake. Do I really have to apologize for this? They, they should get over it anyways. And sometimes people just lack empathy. We don't actually feel sorry. We can be so caught up in ourselves and how we feel that we fail to register the magnitude of how our actions affect others. And refusing to apologize often reflects our efforts to protect a fragile sense of self. As one person so brilliantly put it, apologies are the Brussels sprouts of relationships. Research say they're good for us, but we'd much rather have that side of fries instead. We know that apologies are healthy for our relationships it's just much tastier to pick something else. Of course, there is that crazy person here that thinks that Brussels sprouts are delicious, and of course they're delicious when you smother them in bacon and cheese and fry them. They taste amazing. So here Jacob stands at the precipice of reconciliation. 
He can turn back and run away from his problems, or he can face his mistakes. And look at what happens in Genesis 33, 1. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, and Leah and the children next, and then Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. I didn't see that coming. Did you? If, if this was an action movie, Esau would have pulled out a sword at the last second and dropped his brother. And then he would have said some really cool line like, how about some stew now? Or, who's mommy's favorite now? I think that's my favorite line. How can Esau forgive Jacob for what he has done? It wasn't just the immediate results of Jacob's action, but all those years of having to toil and to make up for the trickery of what he had done. And how did Esau feel towards God all this time? It was God that told his mother before they were born that the younger and weaker child would receive the blessing of Abraham and carry the legacy of the people forward. How can God choose such a trickster and a liar? And this is where God begins to teach us something through the story of these twins. It's in the power of an apology met with grace and mercy. How did God let this happen? Why did God let Jacob succeed and carry on the legacy of the promise of Abraham, of Israel? From Jacob and Esau, we see the power of God's mercy and that we are undeserving of it and cannot earn it. Instead, God so graciously gives us mercy in our bad choices. And if God can choose to forgive and give grace to Jacob and all his horrible choices, then we know that God is a God that desires to pour mercy into our lives and to use our mistakes for something good. Even the changing of Jacob's name to Israel after he wrestled with God spotlights God's understanding of our relationship with God. And yet, through our wrestling with God, there is good and transformation that can occur through all of it. Paul points out in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, in talking about Jacob and Esau, he writes, It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Our conversation is not about the power of the phrase, I forgive you. But we are talking about the power of the phrase, I'm sorry. So imagine for a second if I had a plate in my hand. And I ask you to take this plate and I ask you to throw it on the ground. Okay, it's done. Now, did it break? Yes, of course it broke. But what if I asked you to say you're sorry? What if you, what if you did say you were sorry? The question is, will the plate go back to how it was before? And the answer is no. And for some, apologies are just words. It's not going to actually change what was done. Things aren't going to go back to the way they were before. But what we need to understand is why apologizing is so important. Our discomfort with it is exactly why it's important. 
That feeling inside us of unease and embarrassment are telling us something. It's our soul bearing forth the very raw emotions of being human and being in relationship with others. And we must recognize the human element of all of this. To be in relationship with others of any kind is going to experience hurt and disappointment. Apologizing is supposed to make us feel vulnerable because we are, after all, humans. It's in our vulnerability and honesty that relationships are strengthened and it builds trust. Whoever came up with the phrase, I love you means never having to say you're sorry, was an idiot. If we truly love others in the way that we love ourselves, then we own up to our actions by vulnerably seeking mercy. When we step out in faith to own our actions, we are giving ourselves and others the opportunity to experience the glimpse of the divine. Psychologically and physiologically, our bodies respond to apologizing by releasing chemicals of euphoria. In turn, receiving an apology from others does the same. Therefore, we are made to experience reconciliation. Going back to that broken plate for just a second. Have you ever heard of uh, kintsugi? It's, it's a Japanese art form that revolves around broken pottery. See, the artist takes useless things, this broken things that sometimes is shattered and other times is chipped or has a hole in it. And, and using melted gold, the artist begins to mend back together what was once broken, something that many would discard or never use again. The philosophy behind the technique is to recognize the history of the object and to visibly incorporate the repair into the new piece instead of disguising it. The process usually results with something more beautiful than the original. What, a, what an amazing metaphor for embracing our flaws and imperfection with the God of mercy and the strength to say, I'm sorry. So a couple things we need to know about saying I'm sorry. First, it's never too late. There is no timestamp on an apology. Decades can go by. It's not too late. Second, saying I'm sorry is not about you. It's about the person who needs to hear you own up to your mistakes. But before you utter the words, you need to examine yourself, acknowledging the mistakes that were taken, the words that were misspoken, and truly consider if you mean what you're about to say. Consider if you really are willing to change for the better. Avoid using the word but in your apology because anything said or before or after it cancels your apology. I'm sorry I said this, but you are really making me angry. That's a meaningless apology. Actually, use the phrase, I'm sorry. Express regret. Ask for forgiveness. But acknowledge that forgiveness and healing takes time. And to my Esau's out there, I know that this is tough because you know that person has wronged you. You've experienced this before. For many, it's the daily occurrence in a toxic relationship in your family, in your marriage, in your workplaces, in your friendships, and others. And naturally, we are scared to forgive because we don't want to be hurt again. We believe that they should be punished. Who else will learn from their lesson? Revenge seems such a satisfying course. But may we look to Esau, who displayed a godlike grace upon his brother. We see Jacob there with his lavish gifts and seeing him trying to make up for his mistakes. 
It's in this moment that we turn to the power of God's grace in our lives to choose when we're able to, through God's strength, to forgive. That plate broken is not going to go back to normal. Expectations change. But grace is a world-altering experience. So may we, through the power of God's Holy Spirit within us, come to experience and believe in the power of a simple phrase, I'm sorry. Let's enter into a time of silent meditation.